I'm going to make a prediction right here, and we'll see whether this is true or not. So I hope this conversation is listened to a hundred years from now. And here's my prediction: that as time goes on, Christopher Pike is going to be the most important captain in all of the Star Treks. Welcome back, friends, to what I hope will be the last episode of Selden Crisis before we get back into the final story episodes of the original Foundation trilogy by Isaac Asimov. Casting is finally complete, and it's only a few more weeks until our first episode of the final chapter, Search by the Foundation. During my search for the last piece, our new voice of Arcady, I've had more than the usual bout of life's distractions, some good and some less pleasant. Among the best distractions is a new TV series, the latest entry in the storied Star Trek franchise entitled Strange New Worlds. It's a prequel to the original series and features a couple of characters beloved to fans of the show in the half-Vulcan, half-human science officer Spock and the communications officer Lieutenant Uhura, here just a cadet fresh out of Starfleet. I've watched a little more than half of the first season and am enjoying it quite a lot. It's also spurred me to go back and rewatch some of the classic episodes of the original series. Being immersed in the Star Trek universe again has made me think about some of the similarities and differences with Asimov's version of the distant future described in Foundation. I thought this would be a great time to welcome a new guest on the podcast, but one I've come to know well from his reviews and commentaries on Apple TV's version of Foundation and the new Star Trek series and many other TV shows. Paul Levinson, Ph.D., is a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University in New York City and a musician. His science fiction novels include The Silk Code, winner of the Locus Award for Best First Science Fiction Novel of 1999, The Consciousness Plague, The Pixel Eye, Borrowed Tides, The Plot to Save Socrates, Unburning Alexandria, and Chronica. His award-nominated novelette, The Chronology Protection Case, was made into a short film and is on Amazon Prime Video. His nonfiction books include The Soft Edge, Digital McLuhan, Real Space, Cell Phone, McLuhan in an Age of Social Media, and Fake News in Real Context, have been translated into 15 languages. He appears on CBS News, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, The Discovery Channel, National Geographic, The History Channel, and NPR. His 1972 album, Once Twice Upon a Rhyme, was reissued in Japan and Korea in 2008 and in the UK in 2010. His first new album since 1972, Welcome Up, Songs of Space and Time, was released on Old Bear Records and Light in the Attic Records in 2020. Welcome, Paul, to Selden Crisis. Anything you'd like to add to that impressive bio? Well, it was such a great uh, and impressive rendition of that bio that you just delivered that I hate to even add anything. But on the other hand, I can never resist an invitation like that. So I will mention that I wrote it and had published a few months ago a short story called It's Real Life. 
And it's, it's one of my two favorite science fiction gambits. Time travel is probably still my favorite, but alternate histories have become a close second favorite, both as a writer and a, uh, a viewer and a reader, for that matter. Anyway, this is an alternate history uh, about the Beatles, and it's gotten such a good response that I'm now expanding it into a novel, and uh, I think I'm up to the fourth chapter, and I'm having a really great time writing it. So this is a good time to do an interview, because as a writer, I'm always happiest when I'm actually writing something and it's going well, which is not always the case. Yeah, um, I loved the short story version of that. So I'm really looking forward to um, an extended treatment. Sounds really fun. It so, is, thanks. This is uh, a podcast about Asimov, as you know, and Foundation uh, primarily. So let's start there. Uh, we don't have to just talk about Asimov. I, I was thinking this episode could be about Star Trek. It's in the title and uh, whatever else that takes us to. So um, let's start with Asimov. Uh, what I understand you had some kind of personal relationship, at least in writing. I'm not sure if you ever said you met him. What, how did you uh, come to, to uh, intersect with Asimov? Well, let's go back to the 1950s when I was just a little kid. But I began reading science fiction literally when I was seven or eight years old in the mid-1950s. And everywhere I turned, I came into Asimov's worlds, which, as most people know, for the most part consisted of two, at that time, separate uh, universes. One was his Foundation series, and the other were his robot stories. And also, in the 1950s, he had two robot novels. And I, I just loved all of them. And I remember by the late 1950s, I had uh, also uh, read Isaac Asimov's The End of Eternity, which to this very day, I think, is the best time travel novel ever written. In fact, I just had occasion to write up for another site uh, uh, what my five favorite time travel novels are, and The End of Eternity is still number one. So I always loved Asimov's work, and I always tell people, and it's true, when I really love something, I want to have all of it. And if that means we're talking about a writer who's still alive, I always want to meet and get to know the writer. And this has happened to me several times in my life with excellent consequences. For example, I got to know Marshall McLuhan, the media theorist, and we eventually did some work together. Mm -hmm. I met Karl Popper, the Austrian-British philosopher, after I included a section on him in my doctoral dissertation in the late 1970s. So I always knew I wanted to meet Asimov, and apropos of the late 1970s, I was invited by a magazine, I think its name was Media and Methods, to write an essay on some science fictional theme. 
And uh, I decided to talk about how predicting the future was a central theme in those days, and I still think this is the case, the two greatest science fiction series. And that would be the Foundation series, but the other would be the Dune series. And so I, I wrote a, an essay about that. It was published. I sent it to Isaac Asimov. And, you know, people can see this if they just search on Paul Levinson, Isaac Asimov postcard, uh, the word postcard in there. Uh, I received one of, I didn't know at the time, Asimov's famous postcards, in which in, a, in this little postcard, he said, Dear Professor Levinson, I was already a young professor then, thanks so much for your essay. I didn't quite have that in mind when I wrote the Foundation uh, trilogy. I wasn't quite as clever as you are or something like that. And of course, I was thrilled, you know, beyond belief to get that back then. And we had several other important interactions. Back in the 1980s, my wife and I founded an online educational operation called Connected Education. And I, I, I was in not email touch back then, but in postcard and telephone touch with Asimov. And he knew about that. And he actually wrote a very good article about what we were doing and about online education. I never really had uh, a long in-person conversation with Asimov. The closest I got was uh, in the late 1980s at an American Association for the Advancement of Science conference that was taking place in New York. I was delivering a paper and I did deliver a paper. And that, by the way, was a real trip. At the end of my delivery, this bald guy comes up to me with a beaming face. He was Jonas Salk, the guy who invented the polio vaccine. I, you know, so I mean, that was thrilling too. But I knew where Asimov was. He had you know, also delivered a paper. He was with his wife, Janet, and I went up to him as they were walking out. Janet was very uh, protective of him. So we just exchanged a few words. And then, you know, to everyone's chagrin, he died. He'd been suffering from AIDS. He had picked yeah. up in a blood transfusion in the 1980s. I, I, I imagine he was uh, easily recognizable. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. nobody looked like Asimov. I, uh, I I still regret now that he, Asimov was my favorite when I was a teenager. You know, it was my introdu introduction to science fiction, pretty much. And uh, not just science fiction, I read a lot of his uh, nonfiction because I always found it to be just a great way to come up to speed on any topic. He was just so clear in how he would explain things. And it's only later looking back, I'm thinking... I had chances to to see him talk. You know, if I just like ch looked up his calendar or something, I probably could have gone to one of his famous talks that I've heard so much about that, you know, he just, that was his element. He loved to, to, to talk. Um, and uh, now it's too late. Yeah. Well, one of the things with Asimov, a lot of people don't know this, he had a fear of flying I yeah. guess a kind of agoraphobia, so he didn't like to travel much. And so pretty much it was New York and Boston where he gave most of his talks, but he loved to have people coming to his talks. Uh, I'll in tell you, in, in hindsight, being, 
being living in Western Pennsylvania, that wouldn't have been a big problem to to make it to uh, New York to see something yeah. a place where he was talking. Uh, Absolutely. I said, so one day I was driving home on the West Side Drive. You would like this. And I notice a car in front of me has a license plate and all that's on the license plate is BOVA, B-O-V-A. And a couple of days later, I read, yeah, Ben, Ben Bova wrote a comp saying, oh, I had a great time. I had dinner with Isaac Asimov and his wife in Manhattan. So, you know, that, there was something about Asimov. He, he had a way of cropping up and popping up in all kinds of unexpected places. Yeah, cool. Uh, I wanted to give you a little anecdote of how I re-ran into you because I, I remember uh, we had a very brief exchange on uh on twitter like a few years ago uh i think um another mutual follow or something had something to do with it and then uh a couple years ago uh when i was just starting this podcast or just before it uh i read this uh i checked out from the library a book on uh, robert sheckley uh with five of his novels in it and i remembered one of them mind swap was one of my favorites when I was growing up. Uh, I just loved that story so much. It's just absolutely hilarious from start to finish. And uh, that was one of the, the novels in it. Uh, but the other four were incredible too. Uh, and I have even more appreciation for Sheckley after reading those. But on the back of the, the book, there was a blurb from a Paul Levinson uh, raving about this book. So um, I, I thought that name sounds familiar. And sure enough, I looked you up on Twitter and I, I realized that I had had a couple of interactions with you. And uh, that's what got our restarted our interaction on Twitter. So that was kind of interesting. I was just wondering what you think yeah. of Sheckley, if you can expand on that little blurb at all. Sure. Well, first of all, I love stories like that. This is one of the wonderful things about social media. It brings you back in touch with old friends that you haven't seen in 20, 30 years, and it creates new relationships, and it's really wonderful. You, you and I have talked already in various uh, ways, including on Twitter, about, about the importance of humor in science fiction and how, for example, the Orville, I think, does it much better, unsurprisingly, than uh, Star Trek, certainly uh, the, the new Star Trek, Strange New Worlds, and even uh, better than the original Star Trek, although I think the trouble with Tribbles is obviously a comedic masterpiece. But yeah, that's yeah. What, it, what attracted me to uh, Sheckley. Uh, but I'll tell you my single favorite. It just, I, you know, all of his work is wonderful. And by the way, I, I did meet him in person several times. Uh, Sheckley was, uh, he, he never won the Science Fiction Writers of America Grand Master Award, but he did win, in effect, the, the second award in that uh, venue, and it's called the Author Emeritus Award. And that happened when I was president of the Science Fiction Writers of America, and we were having our annual convention out in California, and I, I had a wonderful dinner with Robert Sheckley, but I, but the single funniest thing, and to this day when I think about it, it makes me laugh. I don't know if you ever heard of Michael Resnick. He also wrote a series of novels, but I think he really achieved his best work as an anthologist. That is an editor who put together some really brilliant anthologies. 
That's like, probably where I've in, seen his name. Yeah. Yeah, like this might have been the late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties. He had a uh, an anthology called Alternate Presidents, which I regretted that I never, uh, I hadn't really started writing uh, science fiction then, otherwise I certainly would have contributed something. Anyway, Robert Sheckley had uh, an article, and uh, an article, had an essay in there, and uh, it, it was about Michael Dukakis. And it was about Michael Dukakis is elected president in 1988. Of course, he lost to George H.W. Bush in our reality. And one of the things he hears, uh, I, listen, there'll be spoilers here, so I, I, will you tell me, do you want me to tell you the ending of this story? Or oh, just boy, I, that's a really tough one, because uh, yeah. I'd love to read it. All right, uh, I won't. Maybe you could just, just hit at it. Yeah, well, I, you know, so basically Michael Dukakis, after he becomes president, that's not giving anything away that's in the title of the story, hears this uh, rumor and wants to investigate it that, in fact, interstellar visitors have been here for a long time, other presidents have known about them, and, he, and so Dukakis insists that he gets a Secret Service detail, and they go find where these interstellar visitors are, and it turns out they're in Washington. I won't tell you anything more, but okay. the idea uh, of that is so funny, guys, <laughs> what I think about it now Piques my interest. I'm going to have. Yeah. Is it online somewhere? Is it? You it, know. It, it might be. Uh, I, look, the, the truth is, uh, you could probably get the paperback of alternate presidents for like fifty cents somewhere. You know, on, on Amazon. So, but it might be online. And yeah, I think you know, the story what? I most remember from that that uh, collection was uh, Imagination Incorporated. Was the first yeah. one. And I just loved that uh, so much. Yeah, but they were all great. So yeah, anyway, looks... we should probably move on to the topic at hand, which you started sure. talking about a little bit, uh, Star Trek. Um, so I wanted to know, like, uh, what's your favorite version? Um, I'm, I'm kind of guessing it was the original series, but uh, I shouldn't presume. Um, I'm just kind of curious what you think of all the different renditions of it. Have, have they ever... Uh, match to that or you know what do you what do you think of the um the the whole canon sure well it is it's a close uh it's a close um contest between the original series and star trek the next generation and so let me just talk a little bit about star trek the next generation it was a much more let's put it this way savvy mature uh, series, uh, you know, one of the things about uh, the original series is you could almost see somebody shaking the set, you know, lying down on the floor shaking the, uh, the set when the Enterprise was hit by something. I mean, it, it, everything was that flimsy. But, yeah, yeah. Right? but after all said and done, even Star Trek The Next Generation, I don't think was as good and brilliant as uh, the original series. And that's for a variety of reasons. First of all, there were individual shows, and I already mentioned The Trouble with Tribbles. That, to this day, is, is easily the funniest Star Trek episode. And mm -hmm. one of the things that annoys me uh, about the latest 
Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds, although I love a lot of it, is their attempts at humor are clumsy and obvious in comparison to the trouble with Tribbles. And of course, David Gerald, who later went on to uh, write The Martian Child, and he is a, a great author. Uh, oh, he was the, the writer of that of The Trouble with Tribbles? That's right. And he was much younger then. And, uh, you know, so it's not surprising. I mean, it, it's just an hilarious episode, Brantley Rick. And then I always talk about City on the Edge of Forever. I remember, you know, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, time travel is my favorite genre. And I remember seeing that episode when it was first on in the 1960s. And Again, although the next generation had some excellent time travel episodes as well, yesterday's Enterprise, the Inner Light, in effect, is a kind of time travel story. Yeah. But uh, but still, City on the Edge of Forever for me uh, is the pinnacle of a science fiction time travel hour long, or in the case actually of commercial network television, forty six minutes or forty four minutes long. Uh, series. Uh, so that's one reason. Another reason is also after all is said and done, and this is one of the reasons I love a lot of Strange New Worlds, my favorite character in all the Star Treks uh, is not Kirk, it's not Picard, it's not Pike, it's Spock. I, mm -hmm. I thought he was absolutely mind-blowing in the original series. And one of the things I like best about uh, Strange New Worlds is Ethan Peck is doing a great job as the younger Spock. And, you know, Data was and still is, uh, maybe might even still be around, kicking around somewhere, uh, a, a brain character. But again, as good as Data was, I don't think Data is as powerful and intricate and fascinating a character as our Daniel Olivar, and you know, who of course shows up in Foundation, but even before Foundation, I, I like in general Asimov's robots a little better than Data. But there's no one else who compares to Spock. This combination of an alien species, but he's half human. And so for that reason, there was no single character in TN. G that equaled Spock in 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 Toss, and, and then finally, you know, to give credit where credit is due, Star Trek, the original series, is what got it all going. And yeah. and by the way, it wasn't easy back then, as I'm sure you know. Uh, I I wrote an essay about this. It's in a uh, a collection of essays about Star Trek co-edited by the same David Gerald and Robert Sawyer, a friend of mine, a Canadian writer. And one of the points I made in that essay was how the original series beat the network system. Because as, as you and every Star Trek fan knows, it was canceled after three years on NBC. Uh, and, there, and that would have been the end of it. Uh, you know, there were a few exceptions like I Love Lucy, which came back in syndication uh, and even Jackie Gleason show from the 1950s. Nobody thought that would happen with Star Trek in the first place, but it did. And it 
nurtured the Star Trek fan base to such a level that that's what led Gene Roddenberry to want to do and to be able to do the next generation. And that in turn set in motion everything that we now know about Star Trek, including what Paramount Plus is is doing. So, you know, Star Trek, totally aside from its science fiction, Star Trek, the original series, is revolutionary in the history of television. You know, you you can talk about the various eras of television. There's the network era. There is the uh, cable era. That starts with The Sopranos in the late 1990s. Now, of course, we're into the streaming era. Even though we still have network and cable, more and more people see things streaming. Star Trek, the original series, revolutionized the network era of television and in a way set the groundwork for everything that came after in television. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another thing about the original series that, that, uh, sticks out to me. And this, I I was just reading the Wikipedia on it this morning. Um, the multiracial multicultural cast, uh, and how they, uh, they got a lot of pushback for that. Uh, on that, that, you know, what are you doing? What are you talking about putting, you know, all these different, you know, a black woman on a, on a, on a show, come on. And uh, a Russian guy, uh, uh, and an Asian guy. uh, And uh, I think that's a lot, had a lot to do with its success in just standing out as something different and something uh, really progressive. And, uh, you know, woke up a lot of uh, new ways of looking at, you know, what comedy could do and and drama could do on television. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, a lot of people forget uh, CBS in in, around the same time as you had Uhura uh, on Star Trek and a, at least a romantic uh, energy between her and Kirk. Uh, CBS dared to have, Harry Belafonte on the same screen with Julie Andrews, you know, in a number, and, you know, X number of racist Southern stations refused to air the show, whatever that show was, was some kind of musical show. So, you know, I I used to say when I talked about that, we've come a long way, and not to open up a can of worms, this is a completely different topic, but it's relevant. Yeah, we've come a long way, but those racist tendencies are still with us and they rear their ugly head all the time. So Star Trek deserves credit for trying to buck that back in the uh, 1960s. Sure does. Uh, So let's talk for a moment about uh, technology. Um, the, The technology, actually what I wanted to talk about with comparing Star Trek and Foundation or comparing it with... Asimov's uh, vision of the future, um, what what's in common and what's different, and w- what strikes me is uh, you know just it's a it's a relatively optimistic view of humanity in the in the future succeeding and spreading through the galaxy that they have in common, um, but they're very different in that the uh, that Asimov didn't like the idea of aliens uh, because he thought that aliens would be so so much more powerful if they existed that they'd just wipe us out and that uh, that's really foundational to, um, to Star Trek is having all these alien species who are pretty much uh, very on this, on the generally the same level as humanity. 
That, that seems rather unrealistic. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I agree with that. Let, let's uh, get back, though, to the beginning of your question. What's my favorite Star Trek technology? I've been giving that some thought. I think it's uh, the transporter and beaming. Mm -hmm. uh, teleportation has not received enough attention uh, in, in science fiction. When it has, you, you know, Alfred Bester had it in a, in a few of his novels in the 1950s. It's a very exciting uh, concept. And unlike time travel, which in fact, one of the reasons why I love it, I think it's impossible because if you, tra you travel to the past, you know, the so-called grandfather paradox, and you accidentally kill your grandfather, how did you exist in the first place? That doesn't need to be so brutal. You don't have to even kill your grandfather, just prevent him from meeting your grandmother. And it doesn't have to be so sexist if you prevent your grandmother from meeting your grandfather accidentally or deliberately, how did you come to exist? So there are ways out of that paradox. Every time you travel to the past, you trigger a new alternate reality. That's even more incredible than time travel itself. So I love time travel, but I don't think it's possible. There is no paradox involved in beaming. And uh, to me, that's a really exciting thing. So that would be my favorite uh, uh, technology. The holodeck in the next generation and subsequent Star Treks, that's you know maybe a second. Uh, and I guess third, and the obvious point, and this gets back to what you're talking about, the faster-than-light travel of the starships. And that's obviously something that both Star Trek and Asimov have very, very much in common. And it's kind of a, an absolute essential to having a, a, a human presence spread throughout the galaxy, right? It's absolutely essential. And, you know, sometimes these uh, scientific purists say, no, it's impossible. Einstein said it was impossible. No, Einstein didn't say it was impossible. Actually, Einstein just said it would be incredibly difficult and it would warp all kinds of things if it happened. But Einstein never once said faster than light travel is impossible. So, uh, and even if he had, that's just a theory. We've never traveled fast enough to see whether or not that's impossible or not. So I, I think it's a reasonable proposition that at some point we will develop faster than light travel. And th that is what, as you just said correctly, you can't have human beings jumping from one sector of the galaxy or universe to another uh, in any kind of way that makes sense in a narrative, unless you have faster than light travel. So I think that's an important, uh, you know, similarity. I, I do think there's an optimistic uh, similarity, although between Asimov and the, the Star Trek universes, although probably Star Trek is more optimistic than Asimov. I mean, over the long run, look, the, the mule you know, wins and is in power for a while. So, you know, translate the mule into an Adolf Hitler or a Donald Trump, although that's given Donald Trump too much power. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's as good as the mule, but, you know, Vladimir... I'd, you I'd rather elect the, the mule, I think. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I would vote for the mule, too. He, he, at, least, he at least was sane. But, you yeah. know, but so... Um, I, I think that uh, th there were some negative things in uh, Asimov's universe that we don't find 
in, in Star Trek. And I think ultimately it's very unfortunate that Asimo just ignored the possibility of aliens. Uh, you know, I mean, it's okay. And, I, you know, when I first read the Foundation trilogy as a kid, I didn't think that, hey, why aren't there aliens here? But, you know, once the issue is raised, it's hard to ignore that absence in the foundation. Um, and, you know, getting into, uh, and I know you wanted to talk about this as well, the Apple series, I, it, it's, it feels to me like there's almost a hint of alien species there, right? I mean, some of the people on those planets, I can't quite tell if they're humans who evolved in a different direction or if they're somehow some kind of alien aspects. And what, what do you think about that? that I, I think it's probably likely they're going to bring in aliens at some point and uh, then, then the purists on the internet are going to go ballistic again. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's so much fun, but they're yeah. realistic. <laughs> uh, I was going to say one other thing, though, about the differences is that uh, if you focus just on humanity, uh, one thing that really strikes me about Foundation being 20,000 years in the future is humans are almost exactly the same. You know, they not just that they smoke cigars and uh, and all that. But they're, they haven't really progressed uh, to in the same ways that, they, like, if you look at the, the universe of the next generation and the, the optimistic, utopian feeling about humanity as, like, having put aside all this dependency on uh, currency and, and, you know, uh, that, you know, that there's no poverty anymore because every, you know, these humanistic ideals have progressed to such a, uh, a level that it's a fundamentally different society than we have now. Whereas in, you know, the, the society of uh, Trantor uh, at the beginning of the foundation has all the same flaws as it does, you know, at the time he was writing, you know, very, very similar kind of, and that always struck me as like, hmm, humans haven't really progressed. We, we still don't even live longer than 70 or 80 years. Uh, but, uh, well, I guess that was the true on Star Trek, too, that there weren't really 200-year-old uh, people or anything. It, well, right, exactly. But I mean, I think that's a good point. It's an interesting point. Uh, you know, on that lifespan, uh, basically, as far as anyone can tell, you know, throughout history, there were people who lived a pretty long time, like Thomas Jefferson and... Uh, John Adams, who you know, pretty much both died, like I think on the same day or on the same week. Mm -hmm. in, in same 1840s. 4th of July, I think, right? That, yeah, that's right. And uh, although there's some people who think that one of them, I think, uh, I'm not sure whether it was Adams or Jefferson, had actually died a day or two earlier, and some doctor somehow managed to keep his heart beating until July 4th. That sounds like a, somehow an episode of Star Trek right it does. there. But... Uh, I, you know, so I think in all fairness, you know, to, to both Asimov and Star Trek on that point, in our whole history of humanity, yeah, you have people living into their 90s and sometimes even into 100 or a little more. Uh, that's been the case throughout history. What's changed are the number of people who live that long. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think we can fault Star Trek that much. Uh, on that, or, or Asimov. But the other thing about Asimov, which I do think is 
correct, and I think you're raising a very, very important point. I always had the feeling with Asimov, but this was one of the things that make, made and make his work so interesting to me, is what he does is he takes human beings as he knows them, as, you know, as he sees them, as he, Asimov, is living in the world, and then he projects them into some future situation, and we see what happens. And, uh, you know, that I think is a reasonable way of doing a science fiction scenario. It, it, it is true that, yeah, if you pay more attention and you put into the story ways in which our mores, what we even physically look like, might have changed, it does add more verisimilitude to it. Maybe it makes it more believable. But I wouldn't fault Asimov for not doing that because, again, I, as I think I probably mentioned to you sometime, someplace, maybe in the conversation we had uh, with Cora Boulette about the uh, first uh, season of, of Star Trek, of uh, Foundation on Apple TV Plus, uh, I've read the trilogy three times. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, three different ages. So forget what I thought when I was a kid, because who knows, you know, what kind of perspective I had then. But the last time I read them was with uh, uh, my son, Simon, when he was about 12 years old, and obviously I was no longer a kid. And I felt the same way uh, about uh, the series then. And he loved the series too, and he was 12 years old uh, in the mid-1990s. So, um, yeah, I think that's a good point. But for whatever reason, it never really detracted in the slightest from my love of the Foundation story. Well, I think he understood that he, he needed to make it relatable to the audience and, and you know, to make things come. Well, I mean, sometimes a lot, a lot of people can't get into extreme like cyberpunk kind of stuff and and really far off concepts of humanity in the future because they they can't relate to it and you know that's another reason why star trek is so successful it's got ordinary human beings just in an unusual circumstance yeah let me just say jump in here if you think about a, uh, uh, both a you know uh, written and i think it was on netflix or amazon prime i can't remember altered carbon uh, you know, a very good series, you know, about the future in which they, in that series, the human beings there have undergone enormous change, both physically and what their attitudes are. And if anything, that made it hard for me to get into the stories because mm -hmm. I, I, it took me a while to make sense. I didn't even know what I was seeing, not because they look so different, but just their reactions to things weren't making sense. And it, it's all explained. But one of the joys of Asimov is it, it, it seems like, you know, you and I could be in one of those foundation mm -hmm. stories. And, uh, you know, we, we would fit in quite naturally, I think. Yeah, and I think when I when I think about Asimov's where he was coming from in uh, in in his writing, he was such a fan of history and knew so much about history and, and you know the history of the Roman Empire and you know all sorts of things Shakespeare and all that. Uh, it, so he he understood humans really well, and it, you know he he just saw it as 
that, hey, if I stick these humans in the far future, I can write really entertaining stories. Uh, and I don't even have to think of new ideas. They've always all happened in the past. You know, <laughs> we'll just put them in new circumstances and uh, just take it from there. And it uh, did very well. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, let's talk about um, the legacy of Star Trek. Um, do, how do you think uh, it's going to affect science fiction and uh, society? And, and is it, uh, or how has it affected us? Um, which, where do you think we're going with it? One of my other great areas of work is in our reality, doing everything I can to support our species getting off this planet. And uh, in fact, I, I co-edited a book called Touching the Face of the Cosmos on the Intersection of Space Travel and Religion, because I think that there's an aspect of our movement into space that's missing, and that's the spiritual aspect. Not that we have to become all religious to go out into space, but, but religion at its best has like a magical sense of, you know, where we are in the universe and, you know, almost like a wondrous luster. Uh, obviously, religion has been perverted and also used for some bad ends, uh, in human history and even currently, but the good part of religion speaks to that. And I think uh, science fiction uh, and something like Star Trek speaks to that. And that's what's been missing to some extent from our space program. So I, like many other advocates of Let's get our species out into space. And after we walked on the moon, we're still just diddling around here in, you know, uh, you know, space stations, international space stations. You know, no one would have ever said in 1969 when we first got to the moon that we are, you know, now going to be here we are in 2022, and we're still nowhere near Mars. I know there are plans to get there, but uh, for all mankind, the alternate history story that's uh, also on Apple TV+, Plus, they're going to get to Mars much more quickly than we are in our reality. So I think that what Star Trek has done is it's kept that magic alive. It's kept it burning far more than Foundations or Star Wars or any of these other shows. I, I think that anyone who grew up in the 1960s and loved Star Trek, anyone who came to love it later on, would know uh, instantly that, you know, what we need to do is get our real space program more in line with what they have in Star Trek. And obviously it's not that easy. And obviously we don't have faster than light travel. So, you know, that part of Star Trek is just way, way behind. But the, the fact of the matter is we are, you know, in a situation where maybe we'll get to Mars in the next couple of years and I'll change what I'm saying, but right now we're languishing. Right now the space program in terms of how far we've gotten out into space is still stalled. And 
one of the things that's kept that hope alive is Star Trek and all the various series that have spun off of the uh, original uh, Star Trek series back in the 1960s. Let me say that I, I think we have to give Paramount uh, plus credit or CBS, it's the same company, for you know starting all of these various Star Trek uh, new series. And I have to say, so far, uh, Strange New Worlds is my favorite. Uh, my least favorite was the first one uh, that they uh, did, and uh, you know, and which is still going on. And I would say Picard is somewhere in the middle. So it's not that every single Star Trek series is is wonderful, uh, but um, by starting up these new series, I think there's also some kind of cartoon uh, series below Lower decks, decks and Lower Prodigy. Decks, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Just, you read so, the the Wikipedia on Star Trek. It's just amazing how how much Star Trek there is now, and how much has there has been. Yeah. So that's a healthy thing. That's great, yeah, and, and, and that well, keeps this burning. What you were just saying that brought up a couple of thoughts with me, and and I think about the uh, the the arguments against going into space and and going to other planets. Um, going, you know, that um, Mars is a um, is a deadly place. Why would anybody want to go there? It's kind of like, duh, you know, we know that. Uh, and uh, but you know, that's not the real point. Um, my my thinking is that these arguments, and many of them come from really intelligent people. A lot of scientists and everything make these points as well, and they they just seem really lacking in imagination, uh, and. The, when you think of the the future in an imaginative way, you can see lots of ways that it can, you know, it can change humanity's future for the better in, in all sorts of ways. And Star Trek is one of the best examples of of showing those those kind of changes because it it and it it fosters that sense of imagination. And I'm I'm hoping that this barrage of new Star Trek and you know the 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 reach of it really. It, you know, extends its tendrils into people's minds, and they they think of like new ways of thinking about the future, and not just in, you know, uh, the just a, like a, a dead end. Or you know, why would we want to go to Mars? It's 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 an it's an ugly, hideous place where you get killed. You know, um, the great science fiction demonstrates the possibilities of what how you can change. Uh, a, a place how you we can be changed to adapt to a place that's very different and I, I think there's just so many uh, positive things that can come out of that kind of uh, uh, spark to the human imagination absolutely let me tell you about my PhD mentor at New York University Neil Postman he was basically a critic of technology. He didn't like computers. He didn't like space travel. I don't know exactly what he liked uh, as far as technology was concerned. He was a brilliant teacher, however. and In fact, he's the best teacher I ever had just in terms of the love and the passion that he brought to his 
delivery and, and the subjects he uh, taught about. But I won't forget one day I was talking to him about space travel and he looks at me uh, in this way that he did uh, and he, he was shaking his head and he says to me, and this is like my best impersonation of him, he said to me, Paul, don't, don't you understand? There's no air up there. If we go out into space, we'll die. And so I said, yeah, I do understand. But you know, don't you understand, if, you know, if we went up in an airplane, there's not much air up there either. The plane actually uh, you know, distributes air into the cabin. That's why passengers are okay, even though they might be at a very high altitude. And you know, this is an example of either you get it or you don't. For yeah, people like, um, yeah, there. If you look on, uh, if you Google like arguments against flight <laughs> from the uh, from the nineteen from around the turn of the century into the nineteen hundred, like just a few years before the Wright brothers, or even there's some that happened after the Wright brothers proved flight was possible, <laughs> that said absolutely no way that we'll ever be able to fly. You know, this is nonsense. Why is anybody even thinking about this? You know, if man was meant to fly, that you'd have been born with wings, that kind of thing. And it's it's just a very uh, enduring part of human psychology, I guess. Uh, what? This inability to, to think in completely new and imaginative ways. Yeah, and it's worse than that. I mean, you know, one of the things I often like citing to the, these technophobes is uh, people somehow who were thought to be experts on this said getting on a train was something that would be fatal to us. This goes literally back to the 1830s and 40s when they were first laying down just train tracks well before, you know, the transcontinental railroad. These were like just train tracks from like London to Brighton, England. And, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, people who were impressed with their own knowledge of humanity said human beings weren't meant to travel 40 miles an hour on a train. This is, you know, that people's hearts will collapse or some kind of nonsense. And, yeah, this happens over and over and over again. And, you know, to get back to Star Trek, Star Trek speaks to people who ever since they were kids thought that view that is that we can't do this because we're, you know somehow it's not natural people who from the day they began thinking about this thought that was nonsense and um that's what's so good about star trek and you know i'll tell you a story about my mother who i'm not 100 clear what her view was about space travel but it, it this is relevant in terms of science fiction um when I first uh, told my mother I'm working on a science fiction novel uh, and I gave her part of it to read, she, she got back to me and said, well, hey, this is very, very enjoyable, but when are you going to write about something serious? So then I gave her like a copy of my doctoral dissertation. She read that also and said, all right, this is good, but when are you going to write something that uh, a person can understand? So you know, she, she didn't like anything that I wrote. Uh, but uh, but but her comment about science fiction is actually re relevant to what we're talking about because she, you know, really thought that science fiction was like just kind of some kind of crazy nonsense, 
And, you know, okay, it's escapist, it's fun, but let's talk about the real world. Whereas you and I, we think science fiction is just a natural, a description of a natural human projection into the future. And when we see something like Star Trek, it makes us feel good. And let's not forget to talk about the Orville, because I think they are doing a great job also of, of, of getting us into the future. Uh, yeah, with, yeah. With... I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Orville, and I never expected to be. I was never a, a fan of Seth uh, MacFarlane before uh, I did... I started watching the Orville. Uh, I thought it was all just like, I, I, I never actually watched Family Guy, to be honest, but uh, I, I saw little clips and things. and I expected it to be just a uh, complete nonsense and, you know, a parody kind of thing. And it became really serious and heavy and like great dramatic storytelling uh, on, on a very similar level and sometimes exceeding what Star Trek does. And I've been really impressed with this season so far. I think this season is fabulous. They've uh, they've they've done very well going from Fox to Hulu. They have more time. They can use somewhat salty language, which is fun. And uh, with a few exceptions, the the st stories have been top notch. And uh, in many ways, I think the Orville captures the ambience of the original series and to some extent uh, the next generation. I mean, the, the standard description of the Orville it, is that it's a takeoff of the next generation. You have someone there who looks like Worf. You have a, you know, that, that robot. Uh, you know, everything is a slight exaggeration of the, uh, you know, the characters that we saw in Star Trek The Next Generation. And, and that's true enough. But to me, the, the ambience of the stories capture a lot of what uh, the original series did. And so I would put the Orville right up there in the Star Trek uh, genre and, uh, or in the Star Trek corpus of works, to use that fancy word. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I know we have a different opinion of episode three, the one uh, with the uh, the mortality paradox, it was called. Um, you called it hodgepodge. I, I called it like, uh, I called it Kafkaesque. Um, and I, I just love um, that the, it, what ideas it stimulated in me, and especially that ending, because uh, it really makes you think about human evolution far beyond uh, the level they're at at the point, you know, and they they seem like primitives to this, you know, exotic being that's been around for 50,000 years. And, you know, she says to, to them, uh, evolution is blind and drunk and, you know, no, no offense, I hope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I wouldn't be offended if somebody called me blind, so... <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, uh, but uh, the uh, and then the very end with the little conversation, uh, uh, you know, after everything is resolved, uh, where uh, uh, Seth's character uh, Ed Mercer, the captain, is asked, uh, "Why would you want to live forever?" And he says, "I just want to see what happens." I, that struck me so so hard. I, I thought that was brilliant. 
mainly because that's been my answer that I've always given. <laughs> and my wife asks that question sometimes. And uh, that's, that's, the, that's the simplest and most direct answer to the question. I'm curious. I, and I would, I, I hate to miss what's going to happen, you know. And that's one of the reasons we read science fiction and want to see all these shows. And we just love that people are making them is it's the best uh, alternative to living forever. You get to see what's happening or possibilities of what could happen in the future. Absolutely. And first of all, that was my favorite part of the show. Uh, when Ed Mercer says he wants to see what's going to happen, that's his reason for wanting to live forever. Because like you, I agree with that completely. But I'll tell you why I gave that show a by and large negative review. In general, and this goes well beyond uh, the Orville, Star Trek, it, it pertains to any narrative. I think that a story should be exciting and provocative and weaving you into it throughout. Uh, I don't particularly like stories where you have to put up with what I would say is a whole lot of fluff uh, and then eventually there's a wonderful payoff. And so when I was saying, you know, that uh, the third episode of the third season of the Orville was a hodgepodge, up until the ending, I thought it was because there was no explanation as to what was happening. And it was just scene after scene, you know, this character has this horrible experience. You know, th there's a bully in the, in the high school who, and the bully turns out to be literally a monster. You know, there's a plane that's going to crash because there's no pilot, etc., etc. But there was no thread that was tying that together until the very end. And for me, having to sit for almost an hour before that tying together came is, is not good writing. I think it's not good writing in print when you have to read it, and it's not good writing in uh, science fiction that you see on, on television. But still, okay, can I just can I just give ahead. you my my interpretation of that? Uh, okay. That, to me, I read it differently and got drawn into it because I saw it as a mystery, and I saw it as uh, it, from the pers perspective of the characters, like a a sense a growing sense of uh, of terror. We what the hell is happening? It just seemed completely non no way to explain it and it, it just seemed like it was getting worse and worse and that for each one they were coming close to death one after another and there there was just no logical explanation for what was happening but from my from the perspective of being one of them i could imagine it this sense of like this almost like a, a horror situation right they they're getting farther and farther away from the idea of making it back to the ship because they're, they're just more and more disconnected from it. And things just, they seem to be completely uh, in the grasp of something that they can't understand. And then that, mo I, I love the moment where the steps appear in the big door and, you know, Mercer looks at it and says, you know, screw this. Basically we're not, we're not taking the bait anymore. Uh, 
and that that was a nice turning point to me as like okay now they're going to find their way out of this and sure enough they did okay fair enough you know i i i can see what you're saying by the way i just have to say one of the things i love about the orville and obviously their strong suit in addition to usually having great stories is their uh, humor i think it's great that they have these characters in the future with the same sense of humor and the same cultural references as we have right mm -hmm. here. And this, again, is, you know, Asimov versus uh, the Star Trek series. Uh, Star Trek makes a point of not doing that, whereas right. the Orville, they assume that people in Ed Merce's time know, you know, who the Moody Blues were or whatever the group is. And I think that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, yeah, there was a great one in this last one. Did you watch the fourth one yet? Yes, I did. Yeah. I, I, when he he looked at uh, Talaya, is that her name? Talaya, I think. Talaya, yeah, and, and uh, Uptown Girl. That's the, exactly the, right. 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 No, of course, right. There's no way. I mean, look. I think "Uptown Girl" is a great song. I would say, wherever, however far that is into the future, there's no way that anyone's going to make that, you know, reference. But, but on the other hand, who knows? You know. Yeah, uh, and it makes it relatable. We can understand the the vibe he's he's going for there because we know the song. So. He's not, uh, he's not creating this series for people in the 25th century. He's creating it for us. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're entertained by that. And I, I don't have a problem with it. No, not at all. And by the way, that, that Talaya story was a really uh, beautiful, heart-rending story. You know, one of the things, you know, I would have, as a writer and a viewer, I would have preferred to see... Uh, his daughter, Mabenga's daughter, actually be physically cured and have a complete life. But uh, the ending was very gratifying. And if you think about it, and I made this point in my review, it's a callback to the menagerie, right? Because that's how Pike winds up living a life after he's horribly disfigured. You know, that, that is, he, he's in a, on a planet where he mentally can live a life. So... That's an, uh, one of the things that I think the Orville is really superb at is very subtly sometimes making references to previous things that were in Star Trek, and that works very well also, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to go watch that again because I, um, I'm, I'm now on like a rewatch of selected uh, episodes of, of the original series. Just watched... Um, uh, City on the Edge of Forever, uh, just so wonderful. And yeah. um, uh, the, uh, what's the, 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 the Corbomite Maneuver, um, yeah. and what's the other one with the, um, the giant cone-shaped thing that, uh, uh, that attacks the ship and the planet-killing thing? The, um, I forgot what it's called. Oh, well. It, uh, it, le it led to the Coneheads on Saturday Night Live uh, in the in the in the eighties. That's what that's what they did. The, the one where uh, Kirk beams off the uh, the constellation just in time, and he, and he's 
Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember the name of it, though. But yeah. i got to say, though, because one of the reasons I can't remember them, I'm on City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, you know, The Guardian, a very important role. One of the reasons why I don't, I'm not thrilled with Discovery. I don't know if you remember this. Have you seen Discovery? That's the. I the just other. watched the first episode. All right. And one of the main reasons I'm hesitant to get into it is my son has been panning it since for as long as it's been out uh and I, i'm a kind of torn because i i want to know it and like explore it but i've been kind of led to believe i'm it's i'm not going to enjoy it I, I won't give anything away here but i'll just say this uh so there's the guardian uh in city on the edge of forever in in one of the uh discovery episodes the, the uh, you know some of the people from that crew go back to where the guardian is, and the guy who is playing the guardian is the, not that I have anything against him, but he is the same actor who played the police lieutenant in CSI. And if you anyone who's watched CSI, for that guy to be the guardian is totally ridiculous. I mean, he has a, he's like the complete opposite of gravitas, whatever that would be. So I don't know yeah. who made that casting decision, but it, it, but that's not really fair. I mean, I'm sure other people don't feel that way. But anyway, I won't say anything more about Discovery. But um, see if you agree. I mean, I I agree with your son. That's why I said of of the three. Uh, new Paramount Plus Star Treks that I've been watching. Um, again, uh, you know, I've, I've watched two seasons of Picard. I like Picard a lot better than anything in Discovery. I and, watched the first two episodes and I wasn't crazy about it. So I might give that one more of a shot. Give it a shot. It's not as good as Strange New Worlds at its best. But because uh, mm. I, I mean, I think, you know, back to Strange New Worlds, I think Pike is a great character. And I have to say, you remember I said earlier in our conversation that I like Spock better than Kirk. I mean, this I'll probably be banned from like any Star Trek, uh, you know, board. But I think I, I actually like Pike better than Kirk in some ways. So no, I, don't th I think there's a lot of people that are growing to like Pike an awful lot. And yeah. I, I'm one of them. I, I, I really like his style. Uh, what's your favorite... Uh, Strange New Worlds episode so far? Um, I guess, uh, I can't remember which number it is. I, I love the fact, you know, and this again gets into alternate history, uh, where you know what your future is. In Pike's case, it, it's, a, it's a horrible Thing that's going to happen to him 10 years from now and he's struggling with that and there was one episode in particular it might have been the third episode uh, I'm not sure the fourth episode where they they're up to eight episodes I can't remember the number uh, but I, I love that episode in which Pike uh, is aware of it and oh yeah I think I know the episode I'll tell you a little bit more about that where uh, Pike may be in love with this woman on this planet. They had an affair earlier. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. and not to give too much away. She, that was a great episode. Yeah. yeah that, sure. that, I, but, you know, she basically says to him at one point, without to give too much away, you know, why don't you just stay here with me? We can change the future. 
And Pike is not willing to do that, but you can see he's tempted. Yeah. And uh, that's I before mean, he it, finds out how horrible things are. <laughs> that's right, exactly. But I mean, if you think about it, I, just a little bit more on Pike. Pike was the the first starship captain, right? He he was in the pilot for the original series. He came back in the menagerie. I'm going to make a prediction right here, and we'll see whether this is true or not. So I hope this conversation is listened to a hundred years from now. And here's my prediction: that as time goes on, Christopher Pike is going to be the most important captain in all of the Star Treks. Wow, that is a bold yeah. prediction. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure I'd go that far. <laughs> okay, Kirk's a legend. Well, he is a uh, legend. Whether he deserves it or not, he's a legend. Yeah. I'll tell you what my favorite is. My favorite is okay. the second one uh, with uh, where uh, they uh, they have these uh, the comet one where this comet's going to wipe out this planet and they're they're they need to go in and uh, divert it. And right. then these uh, this shepherds appear, this giant spaceship that's going to blow them away if they touch the comet. And that kind of creates the classic dilemma of the you know, humanist dilemma. Do we go along with um you know what these aliens are saying or, and honor their sacred traditions and let millions of people die or do we get involved somehow and i thought they they found such a brilliant um middle ground uh and pike did you know pike and spock figured out what they needed to do and una or no not una uh uhura uh, figured out figured it out and i loved the way she figured things out uh, using music to decode the message from the uh, that was on the comet. Uh, in some ways, it was really uh, it resonates with my rock opera I wrote years ago, um, because there it's it's also a story of mythology and how a um, a, a planet and an, and its atmosphere have this romance together and they create a story and that later people uh, find the story and have to interact with. Um, I could go on and on about that. <laughs> no, no, I think that's great. I, let me just, I'll just throw in here. I, I love that episode too. And uh, the, the music as a language also resonates with my very first novel, The Silk Code, in which the Neanderthals who may or may not have actually had bones and they poked holes into them and they played them as flutes. Th there's a language in that as well. They can't speak yet, but, but they communicate through that music. So oh, I, I thought very that, good. yeah, that yeah, was handled that. very well. And, um, yeah. yeah. Now I want to read your story. What's it called? It's called The Silk Code. And uh, it was my first novel published in 1999, and it won the Locus Award for Best First Science Fiction Novel of 1999. So uh, some critics, it's a very discursive novel. Uh, basically, it starts off in the present, then it goes back to 700 AD, then it comes back to the present. So, that, you know, a lot, not a lot of people, some people found that a little bit too disconcerting. Uh, for them, but uh, that's how I felt like writing it. So too bad. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, it uh, piques my interest. So we're getting pretty far into this, and I, I wanted to get into one more question, and that's sure. about Apple TV Foundation. Uh, we had a wonderful talk with Cora Bueller on this um, 
a while back, and I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but uh, I'm wondering if you've had additional thoughts about that show and if you have any predictions for what might be coming up in the next season. Yeah, look, I have to say, and I, I really hate to say this because you know how much I love Foundation, but you know how it is. You, you have a, a reaction to something when you first experience it, and then you, you know, go months, maybe even years, and you think about it again. And sometimes you think it's even better than you thought. Sometimes you feel exactly the same about it. Sometimes the glow has worn off, and you don't even feel as good about it as you did then. And I have to say, in contrast to Asimov's novels, which is, you know, we've discussed, they've stayed with me all my life. Every time I think about it, I love them. Every time I think about what to me is like the epitome of a great story where there, and this might be a spoiler, you know, for people who haven't read any of the foundation, but I assume most people have that that scene uh, on the first foundation where they're sitting watching the Harry Seldon hologram, and and Harry is telling them one thing as the mules ships pierce their atmosphere. That was just so brilliant. And even when I think about today, I almost get like chills. That's like one of the most thrilling things I ever read in fiction. Anyway. Honestly, look, I very much enjoyed the first season. I'm certainly going to see the second season. But there was something lacking in the first season. And it was a big something lacking. And I'm not even sure what that was. But, you know, I, I, I didn't like the way, you know, what our Daniel Oliver had become. I didn't like the way she was portrayed. I didn't like, you know, Harry Seldon being killed then, you know, and even though that was explained later on. And I think as I did say at the time, I thought nonetheless that that first series was an excellent piece of science fiction. But I thought that because of something that had almost nothing to do with the original Asimov right. the, trilogy. The, yeah, the, the Empire the parts, right? Yeah, the clonal triumvirate was brilliant. And so, you know, that's honestly how I feel. And I feel bad that I feel that way. And I, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I kind of have part, I, I don't think I'm quite as far in the, it, towards like the disappointment side. I'm, I'm on the edge and I'm like thinking they've got to rescue it in season two. And that's, and they did so many, I think they did some things really well. And especially I found the last two or three episodes really uh, engaging. Um, but I, I want to see more of the magic that you felt in foundation and empire um, going into that era, uh, how they handle the mule is going to be really telling, I think, um, because the, it, it, I'm, I'm afraid it's going to be like hor horribly disappointing because I just love that story so much, you know, and the, the mule as a character I love so much and I can't imagine being pleased with how they do it, but I'm going to try not to be too bound in my memories of how Asimov brilliantly portrayed it. 
and like take it on its own as its own as as a as a separate thing yeah just a, a tv a science fiction story effectively unrelated in some ways i wish it was completely unrelated yeah kind of i wish it was almost like the orville is to star trek yeah uh, and, and without any canon to to worry about uh because i think they'd do better if they had uh, a whole new story to tell and and not be like you know having all these characters dubiously named after characters they don't resemble in the books at all Oh. Yeah, I look, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a sad, but also fascinating thing. I don't particularly usually have sympathy with, you know, people who don't like this or that movie or television series, because it doesn't follow to the letter, you know, what they read in the in the book. Uh, because, you know, that's not what translating something from one medium to another is about. It has to be somewhat different, e even in terms of what characters look like. It, I think one par part of it is that what we love in Foundation is not the details as much as the big ideas and the, the sweep of it and, you know, the 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 big themes like you know the great man of history uh, versus psychohistory and and things like that, which seems to be largely missing in trying to craft this like you know uh, edge of your seat uh, thriller kind of story storyline uh, that you know yeah that works on TV these days. Um, it's. And I agree completely that it would be a disaster to try and duplicate it, you know, all the details and make it, it would make it like a documentary or, or worse. Yeah. Look, uh, I mean, look, the fact is, I mean, I don't even think that psychohistory was well presented. You know, what, what exactly did Harry predict that came true in that first season? So, I mean, yeah. You know, you, you can struggle and say, well, he said this and that. But I mean, so again, they this is like too strong, maybe, but they inhibited Harry Seldon's character. Um, uh, you know, they said the right things about him, but we didn't see him doing those right things. So, uh, you yeah. know. It, what's interesting to me is that the people I've talked to, I, I have talked to people who really loved it. And they're generally people who, didn't read the books mm -hmm. so it's it, it's working and that's that's the goal of the the director of it the showrunner is to bring in a new audience uh that hasn't read the books and uh, it's working for a lot of those people apparently you know they're seeing it as a as a really entertaining show and um so i, I it's not for us, apparently. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, but I, I try to to be two people. You know, I try to to separate the the me that loves the original books and those ideas in those books, um, and the, the Asimovian uh, fan, the fan of Asimov, from uh, just uh, like try to be a an an ordinary person who hasn't read the books when I watch the show. Well, you know, we talked about this in the conversation we had with Quora, you know, I, my first love syndrome theory, and I think it's true, yeah. you know, people, what they're first exposed to, but I think that the problems with foundation, of course, it's hard, you know, how this can't be proven. I think this goes beyond the first love 
syndrome. Um, I, you know, and I'm not surprised, however, that people who didn't read the Asimov novels uh, can love the Foundation series because, first of all, again, the clonal triumvirate is brilliant, and there are a lot of good aspects to that story. But uh, my reason, I, and I suspect your reason, is not just that the uh, television series doesn't live up to Asimov uh, and, and his work. It's that it doesn't deal in any significant way with some of the essential things that made the original trilogy so wonderful. And so is there a chance that they can in the second season? Sure. But frankly, I would be amazed if we're having this conversation next year. And we both say, hey, you know what? David Goyer really came through with the mule. I, 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 can, I would bet money that we're not going to feel that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I feel alive. I'm 99% sure I'm not going to like what he does with the mule. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm surprised, but I'm not expecting to be. Yeah, me too. Okay, well, I think uh, we've been going on uh, for an hour or so, a little more maybe. Um, so I should let you go and um, really appreciate you coming on. I'm going to put notes in the show notes to the to the two things that I've done with you previously on your uh, website. Uh, the one cool. on the on doc, talking about severance and the earlier one with uh, with Cora. And, I'll do the same. I'll do the same for you uh, on my uh, as I'll put this ep this episode that we're now recording. I'll put URLs to that on the various places where you and I have talked before. Excellent. Okay, well, it's been really fun, Paul. Take and, care. Uh, glad I got to know you. My pleasure, Joe. One of these days when COVID is over and who knows what else is going on, we'll have the pleasure of meeting in person. You but, got it. All right, take care. Well, that was a lot of fun. I'll have links to Paul's website in the show notes where you can find frequent reviews of Star Trek's Strange New Worlds episodes, along with his takes on the Orville and lots of other TV shows. I'll also link to the two video appearances I made with Paul. The first, a talk with him and Cora Bulert, a science fiction writer herself and recipient of multiple awards. And the second, a conversation about another sci-fi show recently debuting on Apple TV called Severance, which I heartily recommend. I hope to introduce the new episode on the conclusion of Second Foundation very soon. Keep an eye on your podcast feed and join me again here on Selden Crisis. Mm -hmm.